This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. The Trade Commissioner Service at the Consulate General of Canada in Minneapolis, which supports trade and investment opportunities between Canada and the upper Midwest states of Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Hi, I'm Brett, and this is Aditi. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And Meatball Hogan's. I want to talk about Meatball Hogan's today. We don't have a good Meatball Hoagie here in Minnesota. I love it. I miss it. We used to have one. The restaurant that had it took it off the menu during the pandemic. Very disappointing. It was actually one of my worst days ever living in Minnesota when Red Savoy took the Meatball Hoagie off the menu. I was thinking of y'all because we just bought Beyond Meat meatballs this weekend. How were they? We haven't had them yet, but I will keep you posted. Yes, definitely keep us posted. I'm curious. Well, welcome to the show, everyone. Brett and Steph, besides talking about meatball hoagies, we have a really good show today. We get to talk to the founder of a truly disruptive company, one that has really set the bar for an entire vertical. We're talking to Jorge Herod, co-founder of Blue River Technologies, which developed precision agriculture technology that was so groundbreaking that it was acquired by agri-giant John Deere back in 2017. But Jorge continues to work at Deere to finish the mission he set out to complete. And guys, that deal was such a watershed moment in ag tech, wasn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I've been investing in the space for eight years, seven, eight years now. And every robotics or artificial intelligence or self-driving anything or precision anything company has been compared to Blue River. It's like the why are you going to beat Blue River is like a question that's commonly asked in the space. And so really, really interesting to talk to him. Really cool to meet like kind of one of the first movers that had a big exit in the space to learn about what they're doing, why they're doing it and what the mission is. It's so important for the industry to see that exit, not only to see that there's a liquidity event for investors in this space, but also to see someone like John Deere acquire a disruptive, innovative company is a great signal for those of us who are investing in the space. You know, one of the things that Jorge told us was foundational to the company is that before they developed a product, they spent a ton of time talking to farmers about what their challenges and needs were, and then going back to them to get feedback on their earliest prototypes and incorporating that feedback into iterations of the product. Their technology is truly built by farmers for farmers, and that incredible attention to their constituency was triggered by a famous Stanford entrepreneurship professor Jorge had. And Brett, you got really excited when he mentioned Professor Steve Blank. Yeah, he's a really well-known thought leader in the entrepreneurship space. A lot of the stuff he talks about is, I think, foundational for other entrepreneurs or people that are thinking about starting a company. You should 100% go check out some of the things he says or does. I firmly believe and agree with like uh, the methodology and you know getting in front of customers is one of them and making sure that you're talking to and understanding your customers. It's a quick way to kill your company if you forget about the customer. Yeah, so cool. And that brings us to the question of this episode. Is product market fit all that really matters? It was a really interesting conversation, guys. Great conversation about product market fit. Product market fit is not all that matters, but it is very, very important. And listening is too, right? And coming up with the product in the first place. Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. 
True Food Kitchen has raised more than $100 million in new funding. HumanCo and Manatree co-led the round, and the round included new investors like Priyanka Chopra and Nick Jonas, Oprah Winfrey, and Howard Schultz. True Food Kitchen offers diners healthful choices based on an anti-inflammatory diet. Guys, I don't know if you've ever been to one. I haven't, but every time I've seen one, it's always packed. It is an interesting concept. I mean, we do talk so much about food as medicine as something that is just going to be all over the place in the next few years. There's so much interest both from the typical healthcare side of the world and the typical food side of the world. And that crossover is super exciting. And so True Food may be hitting it at the exact right time. And it's interesting because I've been hearing about gut health for so long, but it was such a niche thing, right? I think we'll continue to hear about it in particular because we're starting to see I mean, I hate to say this, but everything links back when it comes to health with how you can reduce costs in the healthcare system. And we're starting to actually see those links via research between food and lowering costs, lowering morbidities and everything that goes along with being unhealthy. And so I think we'll, we'll just keep seeing it. It'll be a big thing. It's still niche. I think it's coming. Well, next, a new study by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation looked at the impact of delivery robots in three regions, Pittsburgh, Miami-Dade County, and San Jose, California, and found that while the robots seemed to function fine, it was the local infrastructure that often threw curveballs at the technology. For instance, some of the robots had trouble navigating rough sidewalks with overgrown bushes, while others had trouble crossing wide streets before the lights turned red. The conclusion? While these robots might work in controlled environments, you really need to collaborate with local residents and government officials to make them truly effective. Guys, it seems like these are the challenges that can be ironed out, but it goes to show that sometimes coming up with the most groundbreaking technology isn't the hardest part. Large-scale adoption takes a village. So I've thought a lot about this. We've invested in a company called Carbon Origins, which was one of our season one guests. And this is the exact challenge they're trying to overcome. Finally, Washington Post magazine recently ran a feature on foraging for food. Instead of getting some of your produce at the grocery store, these are folks who go to parks or hiking trails or other green areas and look for fruits, vegetables, or other plant edibles. The article says that British researchers say humans are capable of finding sustenance in more than 7,000 species of plants. Proponents of foraging say it's more sustainable. If it's done at meaningful scale, it can cut down on the carbon footprint from industrial agriculture. The article quoted experts as saying most of the stuff you collect foraging is safe, save some mushrooms that could kill you. And some people have even built businesses around foraging. Is this something that has legs to go mainstream? Or do you think it's just a fad? Like, I wouldn't do it. I think foraging is, it's interesting, but you come up to some of the problems that face the food industry, which is convenience and money, right? And so I don't think it's going to go mainstream because it involves having to go out and find your food, which is not something that people do. We've seen people, people will rarely drive, you know, an extra mile to the grocery store. I don't even drive to the grocery store. I will. Yeah, I do my foraging at home on Instacart. Exactly. I think the people who do it do it often for fun, not because it's the only food source. The novelty and that connection to the land. Mm -hmm. Well, coming up, we'll talk to Jorge Herod about what it's like when your entrepreneurial dreams come true and you have a once in a lifetime offer to truly change the world. It is not often that a company comes along and develops a product so game-changing that it not only disrupts an entire industry, but sets the bar for any other company innovating in that area. 
Blue River Technology is that company. The startup was launched by Jorge Harad and Lee Redden when they were Stanford grad students. Their mission was to help farmers take on some of their biggest challenges by making agricultural equipment smarter. Blue River focused on precision agriculture. Its first product was a piece of computer vision hardware you hitched to a tractor that targeted weeds and sprayed them with surgical precision, saving farmers time, money, and product. It also made the process more sustainable, a key part of Jorge and Lee's mission. From the earliest stages of developing their product, Jorge and Lee talked to farmers and had them tested out again and again. And it was a farmer who introduced the pair to a contact at John Deere, paving the path to Deere's acquisition of Blue River in 2017, a deal that is still considered an inflection point in agricultural innovation. That moment was an opportunity of a lifetime few founders ever get, a chance to change the world by making their product available globally. For Jorge, the story almost seems predestined after a childhood influenced by his grandfather's farm and his dad's entrepreneurial pursuits. I consider myself one of these, I don't know, they call it authentic entrepreneurs. The mission on what I'm doing today links to all the way to my past, uh, all the way to my childhood. My father is a PhD from Stanford, entrepreneur, had his own company designing automation, right? So advanced automation when I was growing up and my grandfather was a farmer. So uh, I would spend my summers, literally half of my summers, we would go to the farm and help there. And also, I don't know, he lived pretty close to the ocean. So it was a pretty nice place, but we would help picking up tomatoes, right? Doing hard labor in a farm. And the other half of my summer, I would spend with my father working in industrial automation, trying to automate this hard labor processes, uh, conveyor belts and mixing plants and food processing plants that, uh, and trying to make things more automatic. So I've been dreaming of uh, bringing automation to farms for a long time. Of course, there are a lot of challenges relative to industrial automation, a lot of sun and outdoors and weather and things that you have to do and need to move. But I've been, I would say, working on that problem through all, all my life, all, all the way to where I am now, which is heading automation and autonomy at John Deere. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and where you grew up. Yeah, all this was in Peru, where I grew up. I lived in Peru until I finished my undergrad. I studied electrical engineering, following kind of my father's footsteps and started pursuing that uh, technology path. Then life brought me to the U.S. I, I was uh, lucky enough to get a fellowship, uh, get admitted to Stanford. My father's PhD was uh, from Stanford. So I anyhow, decided to follow the footsteps and, and did my master's in electrical engineering and engineering management. Then uh, joined this company called Trimble Navigation, where I joined a group working in automatic steering for tractors using GPS to make tractors go straight. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I got to learn a lot about agriculture at large scale. My technology and agricultural path intertwining and getting to know a lot more about agriculture and technology at Trimble. You went to Trimble after studying engineering. Was it a coincidence that you worked in the agriculture part of the business or did you choose that because of your experiences in childhood? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I started actually at Trimble in a group in communications and satellite communications and I had a lot of fun. But at some point, 
Trimble decided to start a group in agriculture. And it was a tiny group of, uh, I think it was five people, and they were looking for more people. And I raised my hand as high as I could when that happened. They were looking for somebody to manage the engineering side of things there. And I volunteered because of my path. Just listening to this story already, you can kind of follow the breadcrumbs and see how this led you to found your own company, Blue River, especially with what you guys do. But you also have those entrepreneurial roots from childhood, right? So at what point did it all kind of come together and you had that moment where you realized you wanted to start your own thing? Yeah, I ended up working at that Trimble for 15 years, mostly in engineering, working through the ranks. I ended up being the director of engineering for the agriculture group. At that time, we were about 100 people, so it had grown quite a bit. Then I moved into M&A. I, in addition to heading engineering, I had M&A. We ended up acquiring some companies. I was reminded in doing that how much fun entrepreneurship can be, right? And I ended up being the general manager for the Precision Agriculture Group at Trimble. I did that for two or three years, and that was uh, going pretty well. But I, w- I felt moving more from the engineering to the business side and decided to go back to school. I went back to Stanford to do an executive MBA, take a leave of absence, and learn a little bit about this. While I was there, right, all these things confluence, the being in Stanford, where it's, I don't know, a lot of entrepreneurs and met a lot of entrepreneurs and, uh, I don't know, had met uh, entrepreneurs in my in, as part of my acquisitions, my father, all this uh, said, okay, let's see if I can find a unique idea of my own and go and pursue it. Aditi, fun fact, I applied to Stanford and did not get in. I'll play again. They're a lot worse for it. He got in twice. I didn't even, couldn't even get it once. <laughs> Well, I would say you're doing just fine, Brett. (laughs) Just fine. (laughs) So you graduate from Stanford. You have this entrepreneurial bug. At what point did you go ahead and decide, I'm going to launch Blue River? Yeah. Well, I was at uh, at Stanford. I was thinking really hard on, hey, what should I do? Right. Uh, Let's give this entrepreneur thing a a chance. Uh, I felt I had a good background. I had saved a little bit of money. I thought it would be a good time. So it was uh, my two goals were finding a good idea and a good partner to start it with, right? Uh, because those two, a good idea and a good partner, I don't know, are very important things to start a company. So we we took this class. It was a hands-on class taught by this guy that ended up becoming super famous. Uh, his name is Steve Blank. He's behind a lot of this lean startups. And he was very encouraging of, hey, go and investigate, go into the wild and talk with customers. And uh, he was teaching this class for the first time there. Anyhow, we ended up talking with uh, lots of different folks trying to hone in on this really good idea. And the idea emerged during that class, which was really happy. As part of the team I was leading in this class, we were a team of five. So there was this guy that was studying machine learning, right? He was doing his PhD in robotics and he was studying machine learning. And we started talking with farmers and, hey, what are the problems you're having? And we ended up talking about this problem of weeds and resistant weeds and organic farming. And, hey, how do you control that? And we started thinking, and uh, this guy was, yeah, you know what? Machine learning, cameras, computer vision, we can uh, have uh, something really unique here. So anyhow, and talking more and more with the farmers and learning more about machine learning, it became obvious that there was something unique happening that could be applied to agriculture. And one thing I'll say that was uh, pretty fun is there were a lot of people, uh, this contest called the DARPA Grand Challenge, which is a very big, important thing for autonomous car, had just happened. Stanford had just won. The professor that was heading and the team that was heading that was uh, still there. So got to talk with them. And they were all starting to think about, hey, we're going to put this technology 
into cars and make them self-driving, right? This is in, in 2010, 2011. This is pre-Google getting into it, pre-Tesla getting into it. And I was thinking, hey, maybe that's a good idea. But I was think, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, gee, this is going to be incredibly hard. We're going to run out of money before we, we commercialize something. It's just too many things that can go wrong. Then we thought, Putting it into agriculture, putting it into this problem that is a lot more tractable is the perfect place to put it in, right? Uh, in particular, this problem of identifying weeds. Gee, if you need to be good at it, but you don't need to be, if you are wrong for whatever reason, nobody dies, right? It's a much more tractable problem. So you figured out the problem you wanted to solve and the product, but I also understand that in order to really figure out and hone in on the exact product that you were going to work on. You did a listening tour of sorts by talking to a whole lot of farmers. How critical is it as an entrepreneur developing a product to listen first? Oh yeah, that's a uh, really good question. Yeah, listening to customers is the key, right? Uh, early on as a company, you need to find what entrepreneurs call product market fit. You need to find a need that you can solve that is currently unmet or not adequately met. That's uh, called product market fit. I remember one of our professors talking about, you need to make sure the dogs will eat the dog food. Aditi, Jorge casually dropped that he took Steve Blank's first class. Steve Blank is like, you know, lean startup, which is like the Bible for most good entrepreneurs. I was curious, was there any like key takeaways that you had from that class, from those learnings from when I teach classes at University of Minnesota, I actually teach one of Steve Blank's books. And so it's a... Bible of entrepreneurship, right, is like the lean startup. Yeah, he had written his first book. It was called Five Steps to the Epiphany. It was really cool. He's super full of energy. And he had this new way of approaching. His whole thing was going and making sure that you have product market fit, that you have, you're building something that customers want. And you are showing this product. You are then making iterations based on the feedback you were getting. Technically speaking, was getting the accuracy for that optical scan part of the software, the hardest part? And how did you meet that challenge? Yeah, there were uh, several parts, right? So it's uh, decomposing the problem. One of them is, hey, is there, what is the willingness to pay is one of them, right? The other one is, hey, can we capture images at the speed that we want to go that are clear enough so that we can do processing? Then the next part is those clear images, can we go and figure out if we can determine which ones are crops and which ones are weeds. Then the next one is, hey, can we spray only those weeds that we identify? So all those, I'll call it uh, work streams, we're trying to decompose. But uh, what we ended up doing is we ended up very quickly renting a tractor and using what is called an implement, which is this thing that you attach behind a tractor and mounting some cameras in a computer, right? And uh, trying to capture images and trying to figure out, okay, what is going to be required to capture clear images, right? And uh, we were able to uh, go and prototype and show here's what we're doing. And we were showing more or less what we were building to a farmer and saying, hey, would you have interest if if this machine, look at it, right, that is cast this cameras and it did this and it did that, right? And we, we had something concrete that we can talk and show to the farmers. So it was not a working machine that we were able to do, but we were able to have, I'll, I don't know, I'll call a start of it enough to get feedback very quickly. And, and I'm talking about like in two weeks, we had something like that. Again, it didn't work, right? But it didn't, it wasn't showing the whole thing end to end, but it was really good to get the feedback we wanted. 
Can you talk a little bit more about the decision to leave Trimble and actually take that leap of faith? I talked to so many people that I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to be an entrepreneur, but they're never willing to take that leap, make that jump, take the risk. And I would love to just hear how you thought about it, how you justified it in your own mind and why you decided to do it. Because I think that hopefully to inspire other people to take that leap and just go do it. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Every good entrepreneur has a lot of options, right? And uh, entrepreneurship is not necessarily the only, nor the best, nor the easiest path. But here's the way I was thinking. I had been, I don't know, not working for a year, right? I had taken a leave of absence from Trimble, right? So I had been not been working for, I had been paying Stanford. I had actually received some money from Trimble. And as part of the deal, if I came back, they would pay for it. But if not, I had to return it. So I was not only starting at zero, I had to pay to, in order to go and, and pursue this entrepreneurial dream, I had to pay. On top of that, my wife was pregnant with my second child, my daughter, right? And I remember going one day and saying, hey, honey, I, I have been taking this class, as you know, and uh, it's getting exciting and I think I want to do it. <laughs> what did your wife say? <laughs> my wife reminded me she was pregnant. <laughs> My wife was uh, very supportive uh, of what I wanted to do, but we did end up talking a little, uh, quite a bit, right? Because it is an entrepreneurship journey. It's, uh, I don't know, at some point it's a family journey. So it's important to have this, this support. What we ended up deciding, which I think was just very practical, is, hey, we had been working for a while, for almost 15 years, and we had some savings. And, and what I said, hey, I think I'm still pre-employable, right? So if I quit uh, Trimble, and our, uh, I don't know, savings drop below this level, I'll go and find a job. We have some money saved and I think we can try this for a year, but we didn't have any money that in day zero, right? So it's a pretty big leap of uh, faith. And something you said earlier, you're really employable. That was always my thing was like, if I go and try for a year and fail, I can always go get a job. And worst case, I lose my that year of upward momentum within a big organization and who cares? I got my whole life to work. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. Your downside is protected. So all of these factors are coming together. You founded the company. You've talked to a bunch of farmers. You're iterating on the product. So you finally, you know, you, you have a product that you believe that you can commercialize. How hard was it then to scale? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. So we were able to build this product, build this prototype, get it working in, in uh, lettuce farms in Salinas in California. And we had had found some good success, but our plan was always to go to the bigger crops, right? There's about 200,000 acres of lettuce. There's about 200 million acres of corn and soybeans, right? So there is a uh, three orders of magnitude, right? There's a thousand times more. So that our plan had been always to go into corn and soybeans. The technology, one of the big things we needed to do is have the, the machines go faster. And the technology in about 2015, 16, took a very big leap forward that allowed us to do this. It was with the uh, creation that, of this new algorithm called deep learning, uh, convolutional neural networks, right? So things that were hard problems before became a lot easier with convolutional neural networks. CNNs, they, they call her DNNs. This was a really a big game changer for us. On top of that, NVIDIA came up with this uh, GPUs that are very easy to integrate into machines. We decided that with that, we were going to be ready to go into corn and soybeans, which is what we always wanted. And we were looking for a way on how to do it. And you had this product, you were making such great progress on it. And particularly now with deep learning, you hit this inflection point. 
with speed? Did that really allow you then to get into the Midwest markets with corn and soybeans? Yeah, yeah. So we decided that we wanted to go into corn, soybeans, and that we were trying to figure out the best way to do that, right? So we created a machine. Soybeans was one of the crops we tried, but we also started trying with cotton. Cotton is another row crop, very similar to, to soybeans in many ways, but it has a lot of problems with weeds. It's grown typically in very hot and humid areas in the south, in the southeast, in the Mississippi Delta, and that's perfect place for growing weeds also, right? So so they have a big problem with weeds, much more intense than, than uh, they have in soybeans. So we started spending a lot of time. And, and a funny thing is that we ended up working with this farmer. We were introduced by one of our investors to this farmer, and we ended up working quite a bit and going to the farm. And this farmer told us, yeah, hey, we, we like testing with you. We also have tested a new equipment with uh, John Deere in the past. And, and by the way, I think that you guys should talk with John Deere because John Deere is really good in innovation and good things, but you guys are doing something really special that they don't have, right? And if you can marry that, what you're doing with their capabilities, you could be really into something. And he asked us, hey, would you want us to introduce you to my contacts at John Deere? And anyhow, that started a whole different uh, road. I mean, what a win. I mean, that's probably a moment that an entrepreneur would wait for their entire lives, right? It was perfect, right? Because it's not coming from us knocking at the door, but it's coming from a a customer that is, I don't know, has their trust in their ear giving this reference. And so is that the beginnings of what ended up leading to the deer acquisition? Yeah, that's right. This was in 2016 and then 2017 is when we were acquired by John Deere. We had a quite a bit of uh, interesting discussions on should we do this? What are the pros and the cons? But uh, it's been a fantastic journey. And the reason for that is because we felt they were so complementary to what we were doing, right? We were really good on this technology, but it was pretty clear that we needed to ruggedize it and make it so it was ready to scale. And we had, I don't know, these prototypes that had literally had duct tape and were built like a in California, which is probably the worst place you, where you can be building uh, big pieces of uh, iron machines that get shipped to the Midwest. So anyhow, it was a really, really beautiful uh, partnership. It, it, it is a very beautiful partnership. So on one hand, you have this tremendous opportunity to change the world. It's what every entrepreneur dreams about by partnering with this iconic company with mass market access. On the other, it's your company, your baby. How hard was it to sell the company? And what were the things that you couldn't give up that you wanted to see protected? Yeah, that's exactly what was going through my head. You know, we had started uh, Blue River because we we thought we can have a really big impact on the environment, right? We were, when looking for a name, I was looking for a name that would capture the impacts that we could have. And we ended up with Blue River because uh, the thinking was, that as we succeed on utilizing chemicals only where they're needed, right? And that's basically what our machine does is it looks at weeds and sprays only the weeds instead of spraying the entire field, right? And by doing that, we can save a lot on chemicals, reduce the amount of, of herbicides that get sprayed. And that is, I don't know, good for the farmer, good for the environment, uh, good finances, but it's also good for the rivers and a river that is clean is a blue river. So anyhow, if we wanted to have an impact and I knew we had a machine that could have a tremendous impact in again, in an acre, 
in, in a few acres. But in order to have an impact on rivers, to have an impact on the world, we needed scale. We needed to get to all farms. We needed to get to all countries, all continents, right? So John Deere, I saw as the, as the way of, of getting that scale. They have the manufacturing, the distribution, the uh, technology, the uh, ability to bring proven technology and innovations into the world, which are all things that uh, we didn't have, even if we had this I don't know, huge innovation. And how did you know to trust them that they would see out your vision? What kinds of things come up in those sorts of conversations? Yeah, it's building relationships, right? It's going to dinner, getting invited uh, to see, talking with customers. We had been, uh, again, talking with uh, not just this one customer that I told you, but we talked, I don't know, 20, 30 customers uh, during that time and and testing their farms. I started to get more and more interesting uh, with deer and thought that, hey, maybe there'll be something. I... I literally talk with customers, not about the acquisition, but uh, about, hey, how is it to work with deer, right? Uh, What do you think about them? And deer has this reputation, right? That is just amazing. I don't know how uh, familiar you guys are with that, but it has this amazing reputation. They say that uh, farmers bleed green, right? John Deere farmers bleed green is what they say. It's They have toy collections. They have, uh, I don't know, John Deere calves, John Deere clothing. They have all stories of a, a grandfather that, I don't know, in the Great Depression couldn't pay their loans. And John Deere said, that's fine. We'll pay me next year, right? And it, it's been a really strong partnership. It's a really good wholesome company. And uh, there was a, this reputation that preceded them. And now all these years later, is it sometimes almost surprising how a company that is multinational, a global company like that, that's so big, can also innovate as quickly as it has? Yeah, that's right. So uh, maybe fast forward, we joined Deere when John Deere was thinking about their new strategy, right? And that's one of the things that was super appealing to me is there was this person who was a president of agriculture, John May, that now is the CEO. And he was championing this idea that, hey, for the next wave, John Deere needs to take a big bet in technology, right? What is going to take us to the next hundred years is going to be technology, ease of use, and uh, enable farmers to be more productive, more profitable, more sustainable. And that is really what is going to be the differentiator. It was quite remarkable to hear his vision. And now, five years later, see the reality. Now the entire company, now him as a CEO, has a line about this vision of technology, big bets being put in in uh, autonomy, in automation, in, in battery electric, in digitalization. It's pretty amazing. And speaking of, what is the next chapter then at Blue River and John Deere? What are some of the things you guys are working on that are super exciting to you? Yeah, yeah. So fast forward to where we are today. We've grown Blue River. We were about 50 employees when we were were acquired. We're close to 300 now in Silicon Valley. High, high talent. I don't know. We we hire from, I don't know, the, we compete with the Googles and the Facebooks and the, I don't know, Teslas of the world and to, for talent. And, uh, and we do pretty well. We have a really good mission. We have been growing in scope and projects that uh, we do too. So in addition to Sea and Spray, which is now released, we also have been working on a product in autonomy together with the rest of, of Deer. We have an autonomous tractor that is fully autonomous. This is a type of tractor that you can live in the corner of the field and, I don't know, swipe right in your phone and it'll go and till your entire field while you go and do something else. It's pretty advanced things uh, that we're doing. The future of technology for agriculture and for deer is pretty bright. I truly believe that John Deere is 
is well on its way of becoming, I don't know, the largest robotics company in the world, because every single piece of machine is going to be more robotic, more intelligent and smarter. Where are some of the bigger opportunities for automation on farms right now? I'm curious, like, where do you see like the biggest automation opportunities right now? Yeah, we divide it into two categories. One of them is autonomy. Every single piece of machinery, I'm convinced that uh, one day will be autonomous, right? So that means leaving operating without a person in the cab. And that applies not only to agriculture, but also to construction. John Deere is a pre-pick uh, construction equipment manufacturer, right? If you've seen any any fi science fiction movie, <laughs> they've been painting this feature for a while, and I do believe it'll come to fruition. I, I do think that uh, every single machine will one day be autonomous. And then on top of that, there's what we call automation. Automation is about having machines do something that is better than a human could do if a human was operating the machine. How long do you think it will take for a fully autonomous tractor like the one you're talking about to become, I guess, commonplace on those Midwestern farms? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I was very involved on, um, and Dio was very involved on making tractors be automatically steered by GPS. It went from zero to the majority there were a lot of them already in five years, but I would say that after 10 years, the substantial majority of tractors were already um, GPS guided. So if I had to guess the pull is as strong or stronger here, I would say that it's probably somewhere in that range. With all of that in mind, do you feel that you and Blue River have changed the world? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we're well on our way. We're well on our way, but we have not yet. One of the questions that I sometimes get asked is, hey, you sold your company. Why are you still working? Why are you still working hard right uh, on this? It's because uh, we have not done it yet. I think we have all the building blocks, right? But uh, we need to put them in place. I do believe that this is going to be, however, a huge transformation. And I, I am sure that we will be changing the world and changing the world for the better, making it more farmers, more profitable, more, more productive, more sustainable. I think it's an incredibly, incredibly good thing, yet it's not done. Those rivers are still not blue enough. When will you know it's done? Yeah, that's a great question. I've, I've decided I'm going to, in the lobby of our company, uh, lobby of the, where we have saved the space, and I'm going to be plotting the number of, of gallons of herbicide saved. Right now, there's somewhere around 20 billion gallons of herbicides that get sprayed every year. These are what it's called contact herbicides, the ones that we can reduce. They're the majority of the herbicides, right? There's about 20 billion gallons. I think that getting to 1 billion is going to be a big milestone. I think we can get north of 10 billion when we're done. I think when we get to 10 billion, I'll be happy. But hey, let's get first to one. I think we're all on our way. All right, Jorge. This is the pressure cooker part of the podcast. Now we're going to get to the part where you're not going to like us anymore because we're going to ask you hard questions. Yeah, I did you warn me about this. Uh, good. Warning is needed. You get to give me one word answers and one word only. Okay. We're just going to go ahead and get started and dive right in. What's the best crop? Corn. Corn. Good answer. Who was a better entrepreneur, you or your dad? <laughs> Him. Oh, okay. We're going to stay on this family th subject. Who did better at Stanford, you or your dad? He did. Oh, man. Just, you know, being really self-deprecating here. I appreciate that. All right. We were talking a lot about automation, the automation of farms today. Uh, major enterprise farms, specifically in the row crop space, those farms will be fully automated by the year 2035. True or false? 
Mostly. Oh, that's such an in-between answer. True or false? I gave you two options, and you said neither one of them. True or false? True. True, all right. If it was false, what year would it be by? 2036. 2030. One more year. I was close. That was a good over-under, Didi. Did you see how close I got to that? Jorge knows a lot about this stuff, so I, I was pretty smart there. It's a long tail. It's, it's getting those uh, laggards, but... Uh... And uh, no, this is not one word. A single farm will be fully <laughs> automated, but uh, it depends on how many will you get. Yeah. As an entrepreneur, what's a harder phase of your business to succeed at? Finding product market fit or scale? Product market fit. You mentioned that early on in your career, and I imagine even now you've been involved in several purchases of companies, mergers and acquisitions, and on the buy side, what's more fun, buying a company or selling a company? Selling. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's correct. That's the right answer, Aditi. All right. Who's the best entrepreneurship professor at Stanford? Steve Blank. The one who invested in his company. There were two that invested in my company, yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, the other one's going to be really upset. (laughs) All right. Last company. We'll get you out of here on this. What's the hardest crop to build automation around? Haven't found it yet. (laughs) Nothing. I like that. There is no crop we can't automate around. I think a lot lot of them uh, will be automated. We'll get them all. But what's the hardest? Which one's the hardest? Each one has its uh, its challenges. I would say I've, I've been uh, seeing this crop that I was thinking, how would we automate this? It's um, hops. I have a friend that has a hops farm. And I was thinking about how would I automate that? I think there's ways, but it's super hard. Hops. So anyhow, that's my answer. Hops, beer. All right, Jorge, we appreciate the time. You survived and you did okay. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today, I'm here with Ishan, the CEO and co-founder of Serve. Ishan, what problem are you solving at Serve? As a consumer today, if I wanted to get a food experience that was outside of the restaurant, it is really painful. If I try to call a chef to my house, the things I would do is maybe go to Google, contact about 10 different people, hopefully get a call back, and still not know if that person fits the profile of the individual that I'm looking for. It's really hard. It's challenging to find that chef that I want to bring to myself. And on the other side, since we're a dual-sided marketplace, it's hard as a chef to showcase who I am as an artist because that's what chefs are. So there needs to be a way to connect both sides. And that's the problem that we're looking at and solving. Is that a huge problem? Like, Do people need to have chefs? So it hasn't existed before, right? Everyone to this point has been going to restaurants. Anytime people think about eating, it's always from establishment. But if you think about it, right, the experts, the people that really understand how to make the food, make food for you that's personalized, should be the chefs. So if you're going to connect with anyone, why is it that we're consistently connecting with a restaurant versus a human being that can understand what I, as an individual, want and make something more personalized for me. How are you solving this problem? We built 
software-based application for chefs where they're able to create their profiles, essentially showcase their brand, show the world who they are as an artist. Then we empower them or enable them to manage their business, things like order management, customer management, scheduling. Scheduling is a big problem, right? Having all the resources and tools they need to basically run their operations. And then we, we also give them abilities to get paid automatically through our platform. Think of it as the operation system for chefs that want to work outside the restaurant. What's the big vision here? Like, how are you going to take over the world? So we're targeting chefs. We're a chef-centric company. Once we, we have chefs on our platform and we have a captured market share, right? They're the ones that are, are going to be, I mean, their brands are everywhere. They're in restaurants. Now you're seeing more freelance chefs. So imagine capturing that workforce. What does the new generation of dining look like? That's what serves going after. Today, I'm here with the CEO and co-founder of AgroCenta, Francis. Francis, what's the problem that you're solving at AgroCenta? So AgroCenta is mainly solving the problem of farmers not getting access to financial services in Africa. Can you dig in a little bit more? Like, Why is it hard for farmers to get financing in Africa? So it's very difficult for farmers to get financing because there's no data on the activities the farmers perform within the value chain. So all these farmers are in the informal sector and there's no data clarity. So it's very difficult for financial service institutions to be able to, they see them as very high risk people because of no data visibility on these farmers. How are you solving the problem? How are you fixing this? So we, we are fixing this by building what we call more like a, a FICO score model for small other farmers. So all year round, we pick key agricultural data on these small other farmers, their farm size, yield index, weather index, even all the way to financial index to be able to build what we call a financial credit uh, model, where now these financial institutions can leverage on this rich data to extend financial services to the small other farmers. What's the big picture? How are you going to take over the world? So we have a very grand vision. Our vision is to become the number one. One, we want to be a billion dollar company. Two, we want to be able to become one, the biggest credit referencing or credit platform that is providing financial services to the informal sector in Africa. So going back to the original question, is product market fit all that really matters? Brett. It matters a lot. You certainly can't scale a company if you don't have product market fit. You have to be able to build a product in order to get to product market fit. So you need some other things. You need capital to help deploy it. But product market fit is a requirement to build a big company. And Steph, I remember when Blue River, before they were acquired by John Deere, there was so much buzz around the work that they were doing. Do you think product market fit helped them gain that sort of amazing status and that lore around them? I think for sure, because it's hard to sell to farmers. It's hard to come up with technology that is truly adopted by farmers and thus has found product market fit. And so when a company does that, they become mythic. That's a great word, mythic, because that's a great word to describe what Blue River is. So is Hoagie's great word. <laughs> and Brett just brought us down. Well, on that note, we'll see you back here next week. Bye, y'all. Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.